I've always been amazed at the story of Paul and Silas in prison. After they free a slave woman from an oppressive spirit, her owners become angry with them, and they begin accusing them of breaking the law and stir up a crowd around them to attack them. And soon, Roman officials arrest Paul and Silas, strip them of their clothes, beat them with rods, and throw them in prison. But then, do you remember what they do? In Acts 16, we read the story and it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas start praying and singing hymns to God. Wow. In the middle of prison, they began singing hymns to God. What would you do in that situation? How would you respond in the face of being unjustly beaten and imprisoned? Would you seethe with rage? Would you cower in fear? Maybe shout obscenities, if being honest? How would you respond to this kind of unjust accusation? Well, Paul and Silas sing. And it's amazing but it's actually not uncommon. Music is this incredible tool in the face of injustice. About two years ago, in April of 2018, there was a special concert that was put together called Notes of Hope. And there were 11 pieces of music that were performed at this concert. There were songs and symphonies, even operas uh, that were performed at this. And all 11 of these pieces had been written by people in Nazi concentration camps. The conductor uh, who had kind of put all of this together and conducted that evening had spent years tracking down all of these pieces of music, some of which had been written on toilet paper with pieces of coal. And he brought these all together into this great evening Notes of hope. But in the midst of all of that darkness and despair, in the face of injustice, what did they do? They wrote music. They wrote music. Another really powerful example of this is the American Civil Rights Movement. You know, it was largely born out of the church in the South. Martin Luther King Jr., who led the movement, was a pastor, not a politician. So they would gather together at church, they would pray, and they would sing, and then they would head out from there. And many songs were sung through these years of this movement, but one that rose to the top was a song called, We Shall Overcome. We Shall Overcome. Wyatt T. Walker. Another pastor who worked with Martin Luther King commented on this song. He said, One cannot describe the vitality and emotion this song evokes across the Southland. I have heard it sung in great mass meetings with a thousand voices singing as one. I've heard a half dozen sing it softly behind the bars of the Hines County Prison in Mississippi. I've heard old women singing it on the way to work in Albany, Georgia. I've heard the students singing it 
as they were being dragged away to jail. It generates power that is indescribable. Once again, in the face of injustice, in the midst of discrimination, in pain and in prison, what did they do? They sang. They sang. So whether you're Paul and Silas in prison, Jewish people in concentration camps, or civil rights activists in the 1960s, what can you do in the face of injustice? What can you do when you've been falsely accused, wrongfully imprisoned, or unfairly judged? Well, a clear example is to sing. Song is something that can be done in the face of injustice. Make music. But, but I have one question. What kind of song do you sing in a situation like this? I mean, We Shall Overcome is a great example of one. It's a song of hope, a song of confidence that God is going to make everything right in the end. Today, we're going to look at another song that's like that. A song lamenting injustice and calling on God to make things right. So if you have your Bible, open up to Psalm chapter 7. Psalm chapter 7 is where we're going today. Some of you may remember that last summer we began walking through the Psalms together. We started with Psalm 1 and we made it to Psalm 6 and then we put it on hold and, and did other things. Well, this summer we're picking right back up where we left off with Psalm 7. And we're going to be continuing through the Psalms for the next month or two. So today, we're going to read this psalm. It is a song about the wickedness of injustice, but it's also a song about the righteousness of God. So let's read together. Psalm chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Or like a lion, they will tear me apart. They will drag me away with no one to rescue. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my ally with harm or plundered my foe without cause, then let the enemy pursue and overtake me, trample my life to the ground and lay my soul in the dust. Rise up, O Lord. In your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake, O oh my God, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assemblies of the peoples be gathered around you, and over it take your seat on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O oh Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. God is my shield, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day.
If one does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and strung his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. See how they conceive evil and are pregnant with mischief and bring forth lies. They make a pit, digging it out and fall into the hole that they have made. Their mischief returns upon their own heads and on their own heads their violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for being our righteous God. I pray that as we consider the words of this psalm, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we reflect on this psalm together, I want to consider uh, three things. I want to consider the psalmist, God, and ourselves. So, so what can we see about the psalmist in this psalm? What can we see about God in this psalm? And where do we place ourselves in this psalm? These are the things I want to think about together. So let's start with the psalmist. All right, and consider his context. The psalm opens with a cry for help. In the first two verses, it is clear that the psalmist is at risk. He is in danger. His pursuers are after him, trying to drag him away and tear him apart is what we read. Now, we didn't read this earlier, but, but if you look, there's a little header in this psalm, right above verse 1, that does give us a little bit more context. Take a look at it. It says, a Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, I've read through several commentaries this week, and the scholarly consensus is that no one really knows what a Shigayon is or who Cush is. But even though no one really knows about these things, there are a couple things that I learned as I read about them, and I'll, I'll share them with you. First of all, Shigayon is, is some type or, of, or style of song, right? It's sort of the genre of this thing, or the style of music that this is. And there are a couple of verbs in Hebrew and, and other ancient Near Eastern languages that sound similar to this word. Uh, the first word is a word that means to stagger. Uh, it's, you know, so some take that to stagger, and they interpret that this psalm might have been sung with sort of a sporadic kind of staggering or frenzied rhythm. All right, so maybe it's kind of upbeat and, and fast-paced and quick. Uh, that's one interpretation of that. But the, the second is actually the opposite, because there's another word that sounds similar to that, and it means to lament. Right? And so some take that and interpret this psalm. It might have been sung more slowly and solemnly, sadly. But as I think about these two possible meanings, I, I wonder if the psalm isn't actually a little bit of both. I mean, after all, if you think of the examples that we started with, 
If you were wrongfully imprisoned or unfairly judged, wouldn't you feel both frenzy and lament? Wouldn't you feel both angry and anxious? Wouldn't you feel both staggering and sad? So we're not exactly sure what Shigion means, but, but I think at the very least it indicates that this song is one that is deeply emotional, from, from frenzy to frustration to fatigue. Now, now secondly, all right, this is the second part in this little header. Scholars aren't really sure exactly who Cush is either. There's no mention of a person named Cush anywhere else in scripture. Uh, so this psalm may very well be referencing a story that we just don't have a record of. But there are a couple stories where people from the tribe of Benjamin are out to get David, and Cush is a Benjaminite. Right? So in, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, there's a story of a man cursing David and throwing rocks at him. And then in chapter 20 of 2 Samuel, someone else from the tribe of Benjamin denounces David and, and just utterly rejects him. But before all of those stories, the whole second half of 1 Samuel tells the story of Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin constantly accusing and hunting down David time and time again. So whatever is going on with Cush, the Benjaminite, it is probably similar to these other instances that we read about in First and Second Samuel. There are these bitter accusations that are directed toward David, maybe because of family heritage or because of some kind of political conflict. So, so this is the context that we find the psalm in. It's frenzied and forlorn, and he is facing all kinds of accusations. But now, how does he respond to this? Does he respond by getting revenge? I mean, if this event happened in the time that David was king... Couldn't he have had Cush the Benjaminite captured or killed for pursuing and accusing him? Right? I mean, he, he could have. He could have gotten revenge. And there's plenty of anger throughout the psalm. It's clear. But look at where the psalm starts. Verse 1. O Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. The psalmist begins by taking refuge in God and asking him for help. And that's where you always have to start. If we begin only by considering our own circumstances or our own thoughts about our circumstances, then we're probably going to fly off the handle. We're going to say or do something that we absolutely shouldn't. But the psalmist here, begins by taking refuge in God and seeking God's perspective on his situation. He starts by looking to God, and then from that place, he moves to reflecting on himself and his own heart. In verses 3 through 5, we see the psalmist doing some self-examination. He cries out to God again in verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, 
If there is wrong in my hands, then let the enemy pursue and overtake me. In these verses, you know, you might think, you might first read it and think that the psalmist is being proud and arrogant, right? He's boasting of his own righteousness, his own supposed innocence. But, but I think that this is actually a genuine self-reflection. I think that the psalmist is really taking a moment to check his heart and to reflect on his actions and, and see if there is anything wrong that he has done. And if he has, he says he's willing to face the consequences for it. And that actually takes a lot of humility to pause, to do some self-reflection in the midst of a conflict. And, and certainly to admit that, that you're willing to take on consequences, right? This is what's happening. But then after some genuine self-reflection, the psalmist is confident that he has done nothing wrong in this situation. He is confident that his refuge truly is God. And in many ways, I, I, this sort of reminds me of Job, right? Trials and troubles come into his life and his friends gather around and what do they say? They say, well, surely you did something wrong to deserve all of this. But Job remains confident that he has done nothing to deserve what has happened. And he's right. And that's what's going on with the psalmist here. His enemies are pursuing him. But after taking refuge in God and having some reflection on himself, he is confident that he is in the right. And so he continues his prayer toward God. And that shifts us, right, from reflecting on the psalmist to begin reflecting on God in the psalm. The rest of the psalm is, is largely about who God is. The psalmist lifts his voice and declares that God rules over all and writes everything that is wrong. And as I was reflecting on this part of the psalm, I was trying to think of a good way to summarize what it says about God, and a few words came to my mind. In this song, we see pictures of God on defense, we see pictures of God on offense, but as we see God, he is never on the fence, all right? God is on defense, and God is on offense, but God is never on the fence. Let me tell you what I mean by these things and where I see that. First, God is on defense, all right? Now, we've already talked about this a little bit. The psalm opens with a picture of God as a refuge, but we see a picture like this again in verse 10, where the psalmist says, God is my shield who saves the upright in heart. So God is a refuge. He is a fortress. He is a shield. God is a strong defense in times of trouble. All of this, I think, is a way of saying that God is good. God is good. And this is so important right? In his situation, it would be so easy for the psalmist to doubt whether there was anything good in the world at all. It would have been so easy to only see those who were out to get him and give up hope. But in the face of so much bad, he remains confident that God is good. 
And instead of putting up his own defenses or reacting with self-justifying arguments, he trusts that God is his defense. God is his refuge. God is his shield. So God is a defense, but God is also on offense, right? We see that here too. In verse six, the psalmist says, rise up, O Lord, in your anger. In verse 11, it says that God has indignation every day. And in verses 12 to 13, we see God gearing up with bow and arrow and sword as a warrior. So though God is a refuge and a shield, he is also a fierce warrior. This kind of reminds me of a scene in Chronicles of Narnia. If you've ever seen the, the movie or read the books, when Susan first learns that Aslan is a lion and she asks Mr. Beaver, who she's talking to, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. This seems to be what the psalmist is saying. By putting all of these images next to each other, God is a good defense, but, but of course he's not safe. He's a fierce warrior, but he's good. And, and, and this is to say that God is actively opposed to wickedness and injustice. In verse 9, the psalmist prays, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And then in verse 12, it says, If, if one does not repent, God will wet his sword. Right? In, in each of these instances, we see that God is actively opposed to the wicked and the unjust. I mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. earlier, and this reminds me of in one of his famous speeches, he declares, I just want to do God's will. And God's will is to see injustice undone. And all who work toward the end of injustice are joining with the active work of God to make things right. This is who God is. And that ultimately brings me to the third part of that summary phrase. God is on defense. God is on offense, but God is not on the fence. The image that links the defense and offense of God together is that of a righteous judge. In verse six, the psalmist says, you have appointed a judgment. In verse 8, he says, the Lord judges the peoples. And then in verse 11, he declares, God is a righteous judge. Now, what do we do with all of this talk of judgment? Some of you may be thinking, man, I, I grew up in a judgmental church that believed in a judgmental God, and, and I want nothing to do with that anymore. I want to get away from that. And others, others of you might be on the other end. You might be, be hearing these words of judgment and be thinking, yeah, keep on preaching. Give it to them good. But I think we need to clarify what it is that we mean by judgment. What do the Psalms mean when they talk about judgment? Perhaps the most peculiar line in this Psalm about judgment 
will give us a clue. It's in verse 8, where the psalmist writes, Judge me, O Lord. Judge me. And this should be enough to clue us in that there's something different going on here than what we generally think of when we think of judgment, because we would never say, Judge me, O Lord. And again, C.S. Lewis actually makes a really helpful observation when he, he looks through all these different passages of judgment in the Psalms. He says that when we think of a judge, we usually imagine a criminal case that is trying to determine guilt or innocence. A criminal case that's trying to determine whether someone is, is innocent or guilty. But he says that the Psalms usually paint a picture not of a criminal case, but of a civil case. And in a civil case, you're not trying to determine whether a person is wrong or right, but rather how to take a situation that is wrong and make it right. He puts it this way. We cry to God for mercy instead of justice, but the Psalms cry to God for justice instead of injustice. I'll say that again. We tend to cry to God for mercy instead of justice, but the Psalms cry to God for justice instead of injustice. So judgment in the Psalms is rarely about innocence and guilt, but rather about justice and injustice. It's not so much about a guilty world being punished, but rather a broken world being healed. It is about all the wrongs in the world being made right. And God is not on the fence about this. As he sits as a righteous judge, he is not trying to sort out, listen to all sides in all cases to, to come up with a win-win for all the parties involved. I heard something really profound a few weeks ago. I was on a Zoom call, uh, and, and there's this, this other Church of Christ minister. His name is Lawrence Rogers. He's up in Maryland. Uh, and, and, and he said this, we're, we're often looking for some kind of middle ground. But he said, sometimes the middle ground is still evil. It's just a place where we can all tolerate the evil. God is not a God of the middle ground. God is not a God who is on the fence. He is a righteous judge who opposes injustice and will bring the way of wicked to an end. Because God is a righteous judge. There is coming a day when wickedness will be no more. Because God is a righteous judge, there is coming a day when injustice will be no more. Because God is a righteous judge, there is coming a day when crying and pain will be no more. This is the day we look to when we pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is not on the fence about this. He is determined to make all things right. So God is on defense. God is on offense, but God is not on the fence. 
He is a good refuge and shield, but he is actively opposed to evil and injustice and will one day bring it to an end. So we've looked at the psalmist and we've looked at God. And I want to ask, where do we fit into this psalm? Where do we find ourselves in this? Well, I think that there are a couple of things that, that we can take away from this psalm. There are a couple of places and ways that we can fit into this psalm. The first is to put ourselves in the place of the psalmist, the one who is singing this psalm, and ask the question, how do we respond when wrongs are committed against us? How do we respond when we have been wrong? Do we explode with vengeance and rage? Or do we run to God for refuge? You see, through, uh, or though the psalmist here is rightly angry, he is very angry, he leaves judgment in God's hands. He trusts that God is a righteous judge. So I want to ask, what wrongs have been committed to you in your life? What kind of, of bitterness and anger might you have there in your heart? How might you leave those things in God's hands and let go of them? You know, Jesus teaches us to pray for our enemies. And part of that prayer is trusting that, that God is a righteous judge who will make everything right in the end when Christ comes again. But there is another side to this prayer, I think. Because praying for our enemies means that we also need to acknowledge the ways that we have been enemies to others. This is something that we talked about in our Deeper in Prayer group a little bit over this past month. In the Lord's Prayer, we don't only pray for those who have sinned against us, right? We also pray for our sins. And so as we read this psalm, we also have to put ourselves in the place of the enemy. We have to consider this psalm from the enemy's perspective because we have been enemies to others. So I wonder, is, is there anyone out there who might be praying this psalm about us? Is there anyone out there who might be praying this psalm about us? Who are the ones that we have wronged? If you look at verse 15, you might ask the question, what kind of pits have we dug that we might just fall into ourselves? What sins do we have to repent of? The psalm leads us to that place where we have to wonder. Now, here is the good news. Jesus is a righteous judge, but he is also our saving Lord. He is the one that we take refuge in. This is what I think Paul means when over and over and over again, he uses the words in Christ. He has written, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is redemption 
in Christ. There is freedom in Christ. There is eternal life in Christ. And so may we take refuge in God, turn from our sins and be found in Christ. So God is a righteous judge, and this turns out to be really good news for everyone. Because if you come to him like the psalmist, having been wronged, then you can trust that he is going to make everything right. And if you come to him like one of the enemies, having done wrong, well, then you can trust that his grace can even make us right. As we come to Christ, we will find justice that rights all the things that are wrong. And we will also find grace that forgives all the things that we've done wrong. And in the end, we will be able to sing with the psalmist in verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and sing praise to the name of the Lord, most high. Amen.